Let's get going on what is a, a little series we're doing on the church. And tonight, my subtitle, kind, subtitle is a question that kind of says it all. It's a good place to start. The church, is it our job, really, to create or to copy the culture? Let me tell you what I don't mean before we read any text. I don't mean, is it the church's job to create the culture of the world? And I think the answer to that is no, even though... Sometimes I think we get in this idea that the church is supposed to be this great thing that changes the way the world lives. That's where we've come up with world changers. So we tell people, hey, you need to go out there and be a world changer, which, by the way, is a lot of pressure. I mean, you have a hard time changing your own, you know, fixing your bed, much less changing the world you live in. And so it's, it's, it's too much to ask anybody to go change the world. It's also too much to ask the church. And the reason for that is because Christianity is not just about mere reform. It's not about polishing, like f- taking what's wrong with me, clean it up a little bit, tweak it a little bit, polish it a little bit, boom, put some Jesus on it, now I got it fixed. That's not the faith. Christ asks us to enter his death and resurrect with him. So what are we going to do to the world? If, if transformation comes by dying and then resurrecting, what do we have to offer the world? So I'm not saying the church needs to create the culture in the world. Um, in fact... We don't just go add a little kingdom, like sprinkling kingdom into the world. And if we add a little kingdom, then things will get better. That's not how the kingdom works. The kingdom of God is an absolute different way of life that is infiltrating the world, but it isn't doing it because you evangelized or because you got moral codes or because you passed certain laws. Um, And I'm not in any way insinuating we shouldn't be involved in government or politic or whatever but I don't think it's the church's job to create the culture. So that's not what I'm talking about. Um, So I must be talking about something else, and that's the the culture of the church. And the church is what you belong to. A church is also what you belong to. In this case, in our room, we kind of consider ourselves a church. Whether you consider yourself a church or not, you're part of the church. So you're in the church. It's good to go to a church. Why? Because being in the church necessitates that you're around people and part of the body. And then when you do that in a church, you have what's called a church culture. Now, if you've been raised in the church, been around the church, you've seen all kinds of church cultures. Some church cultures are very kind of quiet and stoic. Some church cultures are rambunctious and loud and boisterous. Some church cultures frown on certain clothes or certain activities or certain ways of doing things. Other church cultures, anything goes. Um, We all tend to think our culture's right. We all tend to think our culture is better. (laughs) And so our way of doing it is the best way of doing it. Our way of doing it is becomes the only way of doing it. Um, I'm not here to try and present that. I don't, I don't have an idea about what dress should look like, song should sound like, sermon style should be like. That's not what, it's actually not what I think the book of Acts is trying to show us because the book of Acts doesn't break down how to preach, doesn't break down what you do during a worship service. There's not a one, two, three, four, five, come in, do this, then this, then this, then that. Never. In the, not even in the New Testament do we get any semblance of structure inside the service. But we do see the church creating a culture in every chapter. We see the church shifting in those chapters. And we see the opportunity. And here's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to look at the church and watch how they create a culture. We're going to watch that church move that culture. They don't just get in it and stay there. That's a dangerous spot. Get in it, don't change. My grandpa was this way, my dad was this way, I'm gonna be this way. Early church doesn't play that game. 
but they also get confronted with the culture of the world. They get an opportunity to copy it. They have to make a very important decision. Are we going to do what the world does? Are we going to govern ourselves that way? Or are we going to govern ourselves another way? That question they have to ask, they answer it repeatedly. We're going to try to answer it in our own walk. We can't answer it all tonight, but we begin that journey as well with them. Let's read from Acts chapter 3. I want to show you the lame man being healed. Um, it's not going to look like a culture story, but this was one that I couldn't shake this week in thinking about church culture. And so I want to read the story of the miracle. I want to walk through what Peter does, Peter and John at the temple, and take a look at some of these some of these most important points here. Pretty popular story. I'll try to be kind of straightforward with it as we go. Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. It's probably about three o'clock in the afternoon, depending on whether we're on Jewish time or Roman time. In either case, it's the time of the afternoon sacrifice if you're a Jew. This is when you slaughter the afternoon lamb, shed its blood on the altar. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple. Three. Or, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms, and fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, Look at us. Verse five. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them, and Peter said, Silver and gold. I do not have, but what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. This constitutes probably one of Peter's most famous statements in the entire book of Acts, maybe in the entire Bible. Silver and gold, the old King James says, silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give unto you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Rise, take your bed and walk. It's a man basically, imagine shaking the cup, asking for alms. Peter's response is, I don't have any money. I can't give you money, but I will give you what I have in the name of Jesus. Rise, take up your bed and walk. Then what happens is he took him by the right hand, lifted him up, immediately his feet and his ankle bones received strength. So he leaping up stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping and praising God. I like how Luke, the author, sort of takes this thing over the top. He wants, you to, make, he wants to make sure you realize this was a real miracle because he doesn't have to do all this. Leaping up, walking, leaping, praising God. He says leaping twice in that text. So there's a miracle that no one doubted. Okay, that's, I think that's Luke's point. No one could look at this and say, and eh, maybe. This was a definite miracle. Nine and ten. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And then they knew it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. How did they know it was the one who had been sitting at the gate? Because if you take the earlier part of the story, he had been there since he was born. He had been lame and his family had brought him. Because this was the social net of the ancient world. It, there was no state-sponsored Medicaid. There was no um, you know, emergency medical insurance. So a lot of, it, in, the, in the case, if you had someone in your family who went into an accident or was born with some sort of deformity, sometimes you moved away from the crowd because we were living in a very superstitious era, even up into the dark ages. If someone's born with a cleft palate or they're born with um, different color, uh, a, a birthmark and an odd spot on their body. People thought they were demon possessed. They thought there were spirits that were associated with them. Sometimes these kids would be abandoned in the wilderness. So in Jesus' day, you have an injury of this, of this type, born with it or, it or acquired. The social safety net is 
panhandling and homelessness, poverty. And so the man is abandoned at the feet of the temple. He's been there so long, Peter and John's seen him their entire lives. Now, Peter and John ran with Jesus. Jesus went to the same temple in Jerusalem that Peter and John went to. So ask yourself this, was this guy at the temple during Jesus's time? Odds, prob- odds are probably so. So the fascinating thing to me, first and foremost, is that Jesus walked past this guy every day. And so this idea, first of all, and I, I know I'm, this is, I'm in the weeds here. I, this is the kind of thing you got to talk about, I think, when you get in this text. Is that Jesus passed this guy every day, so I don't really have a lot of respect for the whole argument of everybody ought to be healed. Jesus healed everybody he passed. I do respect that Jesus turned no one away. But this idea that Jesus ran out into the world looking to right all the wrongs doesn't line up with the text because it's not what he came to do was right all the wrongs. He came to die and resurrect so that he could recreate the world in his father's image. And so he walked past this guy every day. That's all I'll say about that. I don't know why he walked past this guy every day. I suspect it's so Peter could do this in Acts 3. Jesus saves this healing for Peter. And Peter receives the power at at Pentecost to do this very thing. And that's exactly what he does. Now, if you're like me, you heard this story your entire life as an indictment on the modern church. That's how I heard this. This is how this was preached always to me. And what I mean by that is look at how powerful these guys were and how puny we are. They don't, they walk right past this guy and they heal him. We don't walk right past this guy and heal him. Why aren't we as powerful as the early church? I'll be honest with you, man. I got, so, I got so weary reading the book of Acts as a young Pentecostal because I couldn't copy the power moves, raising the dead and, and doing all the things that... I had a guy die in a service when I was in my 20s at the end of, right at the end of a sermon. Bring up the musicians, music's playing. Guy, I watch him, visibly falls over with a heart attack. You, you could see it. Just death shroud over him. Boom. I heard him hit the floor on the back row. And I remember we rush back and I'm laying hands on this guy and I'm casting death out and I'm commanding him to live in the name of Jesus. And we pray and we pray and we're in the middle of nowhere. Gravel Road, back county in southeast Missouri. Took 30, 45 minutes for an ambulance to get there. And we prayed the whole time, man. And I mean, I'm not talking about Lord, you know, do your thing, whispering in the corner. I'm talking about sweating, giving it your all, believing God for resurrection. And the man did not resurrect. And, and I remember walking out of that building and just having this alone time with God going, you know, I don't even need to be doing this. If I can't, if I can't do what they did, if Peter and John were here in Acts 3, they just walk up to this guy and raise him from the dead. They go, I don't even need to be doing this if I can't do this in the same power and authority that they had in Acts. And I was, I was wrecked for a long time after that service because, you know, what, how do we claim the power of God? We're not able to do the things that the early church could do. And that's all I saw when I read the book of Acts. I didn't see a burgeoning church. I didn't see a blumbering toddler like I'm preaching to you now, which I've been teaching on these Tuesdays. It goes, the early church is a toddler. They're drooling all over themselves. You know, they're kind of they're going in their diaper. They're making a lot of mistakes. They're doing a lot of weird stuff. They're trying. 
They're, they're failing some. They're getting it right. I didn't see Acts that way. I just saw these powerhouse lightning bolt throwers from heaven raising the dead. And sometimes we miss the forest for the trees in these stories because we keep idolizing the gifts of these men or we keep framing them in a different con- uh, construct. And so I want to try to take myself back to that moment in that church tonight where I couldn't raise that man from the dead. And I want to take you there. And I want us to find out what Acts says about the culture of the church we create. I know I've given you two stories there, really. One's this event in my own life, and the other is this story. We'll bring those, try to bring those back together. How do we do that? Let's break down a couple of things that did not happen in this story so that we can see a couple of things that do happen in this story. Sometimes you need to see what doesn't happen. Start here. Peter went to the temple to pray. Peter went to the temple as a good Jew. He went for the three o'clock sacrifice. Let me ask you this. Do you need the blood of a lamb now that you have the blood of Jesus? No. You know that because you've read the book of Hebrews. Peter hasn't read the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews doesn't exist yet. The revelation that he doesn't need that three o'clock sacrifice of blood hasn't yet penetrated Peter's consciousness. So this tells me that getting the right theology down pat is not key to walking in the gifts of the Spirit, and it's not key for God using you, so don't ever let anybody tell you it is. You don't have to have all the theology squared away. This dude's still going into the temple as if he's Jewish. He shows up at 3 o'clock in the afternoon to pray. He does not go to evangelize, but when he's confronted with need, which is the lame man outside shaking his cup asking for coins, he does not let his religious practice devolve into mere formula. And what I mean by that is he doesn't kind of go into the Christian mode of, oh, I see a need, I'll be praying for you. That's kind of our good way out sometimes is, I could do more, but I'll be praying for you. At least I'll be praying for you. And tell that to the guy shaking his cup that needs a coin. I'll be praying for you when the coin would do him more good than you praying for him in all practical purposes, even though we kind of tell ourselves, oh no, the prayers will do a lot more. How do you know you didn't walk past for such a time as this? And so Peter doesn't let his religious activity, which is going to temple, saying his prayers, going to his sacrifice. I don't even know that he's not taking a lamb. I hope he's not. I kind of think he's not, but maybe he is. Maybe he's still got that old Jewish sensibilities to temple worship. And as he's on his way, doesn't let his religious practice devolve into just a practice. He doesn't stop. And so one thing we see that's creating a culture, this is the reason I'm telling you this, he's creating a culture in which his religion is not more important than people. See that? Because he's religious. And there's really nothing wrong with... At its core, there's nothing wrong with religious. It's our attempt to get to see God, to know God. What we say is that Christ has come and that we have put faith in Christ. Therefore, religion is no longer a journey to find God because we already have Jesus. But I'm not poo-pooing the phrase religion. Um, There's also tradition involved in some religious practice. And there's custom involved. Remember Luke 4, as was his custom, Jesus went to the synagogue. If it was Jesus' custom to go and sit with other people that are believers, it probably should be our custom to go and sit with other people who are believers. And so there's nothing wrong with it, but we don't let our religion take over loving people. And so the early church created a culture that looked nothing like the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees 
and the religious leaders of Jesus' day always butted heads with Jesus because loving people was an interruption to serving God. And Jesus accused them of that all the time. And so if loving people interrupts your Christianity, you need to change your Christianity. And so the culture being created in the early churches, we're not going to do it the way they did it before. We're not going to let our practices get in the way of loving people. People are not an obstacle. People are the purpose. They're not the problem. And so if people become the problem, I need to change my culture. And so the early church is on that journey. Here's another one. Peter was not beholden to the man's request. Before I move on, I want to ask you, what does the man ask for? Alms, an old English word for give me some money. I need some help. I'm broke. I can't work. I'm lame. I lay here every day living off the charity of good people like you two, Peter and John. And Peter does not feel as if he has to give the man what he asks for. I say, example, <laughs> the customer is not always right. What I mean by that is this really sounds, that's more of a retail statement. That's something they teach you in business. You know, the customer's always right, even though usually you go elbow your coworker and tell them the customer's an idiot. Um, I don't mean it in a retail sense. I mean it in the sense of, okay, first of all, the customer is not always right, but the point of business is to make the customer feel comfortable enough that they want to come back and spend their money there. I'm talking in the, in the culture of the church, what people want or what they're asking for is not always what the church is obligated to give. So we don't have to create a culture where everybody gets whatever they want. That's a problem. Instead, we have something to offer. The reason why a lot of churches try to do 50 different things to reach 50 different people or different demographics or different kinds is because sometimes we don't know what it is we have, so we give a little bit of everything. But the more you know what you have, the more you know what you have to offer, and the more you know what you can't do. And I think we've created a church culture where we're trying to do stuff we're not called or equipped to do because we think we should. Church is supposed to have this ministry. We're supposed to have that ministry. We're supposed to do this. We're supposed to do that. We're supposed. And you look down, you got like, and I've been there. You look down, you got 29 things you're supposed to do. And you're equipped to do like three of them. And so you spend the rest of your church growth trying to squeeze a bunch of people into those 26 offices that no one's called to do. And not within a year, people hate it because they're doing stuff they don't like. And the church is struggling because they're trying to create a culture where they try to meet everyone's needs. Scratch it. The early church did not look at it like, we got to go in here and meet everybody's needs, man. we got to do everything people need. No. If Peter nails anything here, he nails what he has. Silver and gold I don't have. So guess what? Customer's not always right. You want silver and gold? Great. Ask for it from the next guy. But what I do have is what matters. So I can only give you what I have. I can't, it might not be what you think you need. I can only give you what I have. He could not ignore the man as long as he had something to offer. And what does he have to offer? Not silver, not gold, but he does have his gift. And I think Peter has the gift of healing. Paul calls it the gifts of healings in the book of 1 Corinthians. And Peter obviously has it. And Peter's smart enough to know it, even though to this point, we don't think he's used it. By the way, John, we don't hear a word out of John here. I don't know if John walks in this gift or not, but I love the guy sometimes that's quiet 
because that's hard to do in ministry sometimes. When the spotlight's up there, everybody wants to throw in two cents. Give John some props here. He doesn't have what Peter has, and he just stands there. He's a good wingman, but he, he doesn't speak up where Peter speaks up. Peter knows what he has. He has his gift, the gift of healing, and he gave what he had. And I say this, he gave what he had with no concern for diminishment means the gifts that God give do not have an expiration date and they don't have a limit on them. Like you can only use this three times and then it's gone. We, sometimes we treat gifts like we're going to lose something if we do something with it. That always bugged me about guys worried about the anointing. You only got so much anointing. Don't talk to me before church because it'll take the edge off my anointing. And I'd think, gosh, what kind of anointing is that if talking to you is going to take the edge on it? You mean you think God gives you stuff that's quantifiable in the way the world gives it? Like if you have $100 and you give a dollar, how much do you have? 99. If you give another dollar, how much do you have? 98. Yes, diminishment is happening. The more you give, the less you have. That's in the natural realm. In the supernatural realm, the more you give, you don't lose anything you give. When Jesus said, if they, if they accept your word, leave your peace with them, you don't have to worry about leaving your peace. You're not going to lose it. So if I give Jackson the peace that passes all, I, give, I say, I bless him with the peace of Jesus. I don't have to go home tonight and go, God, I'm stressed out because I gave Jackson my peace. I need more peace. It doesn't work that way. So Peter's not freaking out that if I give, use my gift, I don't get anymore, or that this guy doesn't deserve it, or this guy can't give into my ministry, or this guy hasn't earned a healing. None of that crosses his mind. He creates a culture where people that have gifts use them. He creates a culture where, and he doesn't know he's creating a culture, but it's exactly what he's doing. He's creating a culture where people that have gifts use them. He's creating a culture where people don't always, you don't have to meet everyone's need the way they, th you, they think you do. All you have to do is give what you have. Silver and gold, I don't have what I do have, I owe you. Think of it that way. I don't have what you're asking for. What I do have, I owe you as much as I can give it. And so Peter gives what he has. And that leads me to this thought. This is missing the forest for the trees. As I said earlier, the point to the story is not that we create a culture of healing. The point of the story is that we create a culture of giving what it is we have. This is why I got frustrated reading Acts as a young man. Because I thought Acts chapter 3 was trying to tell me that what I'm supposed to do is have the power to heal the lame man at the temple. That's what made me run down that aisle that night in that little country church and slap my hands on that ice cold guy's head and pray that he lived. Because I thought that I was supposed to do what Peter did. The point of this story is not that the culture of the early church was radical healing. The point of the story was that the culture of the early church was giving what they had. What do you have? Give that. I wish we could settle on this as believers because we're not out here trying to perform up to someone else's expectations. We are what we are. You are what you are. What you are is perfectly beautiful. What makes it ugly is when you devalue what you are because you wish you could be what somebody else wants you to be because you're not as spiritual as they are. You're not as holy as they are. You don't say the things they say. You don't act like they act. You gotta jump through the hoops and get up there. And then you spend your, your prayer life and your Christian life asking God to give you what's not yours because you have put value on someone else's gift. 
the culture the church doesn't need to be, why don't we all be like brother so-and-so? Why don't we all be like sister so-and-so? That's the culture that's unfortunately easy to find. What's more difficult to find, but a beautiful place to be, are people who let God begin to cultivate the gifts they have. See, I have a theory, and I told you it's mine. I didn't say the Lord gave me this. Okay, this is mine, up front. I have a theory that our almighty creator, in whom all of us and by whom all of us are fearfully and wonderfully made, awesomely made, that's all of us, I think he drops into every one of us something that makes us uniquely us. And I think we could spend our entire lives trying to be someone else and miss the thing that makes us completely and uniquely us. And that's, what, that's why a lot of us are stressed and anxious and unhappy and fearful, afraid and miserable is because we are taking our cues from a society that shows us what we ought to look like, what we ought to think like, what we ought to shop like, what we ought to be like. And the longer we keep running towards that copy, trying, we're really just trying to be a copy so that we can be accepted by people that don't give a rip. But as long as we can be that copy, and we even do it in the church, that's what would make me holy, that's what would make me a leader, that's what would make me blessed, that's what would make me honored, then we're not cultivating the thing that makes us uniquely us. And if you can discover that, that's where peace is. And you go, well, that's, that's hard, man. How can I discover that? That's the tandem role we have with the Holy Spirit. By God, this is why we ought to pray. <laughs> I had someone message me today and go, can you explain to me why we ought to pray? And I thought, how are we still asking this? But okay, I'll be honest. I get it because people have had 5,000 different things taught to them about prayer. My simple answer is this. Prayer is the most important discipline a Christian has because prayer is agreeing with God. Prayer is not getting God to move. Prayer is getting you to move to God. Prayer is me getting where I need to be in Him. And so if there's a gift in there, and there is, then communication with the Father starts to show you what it looks like. But if we're in a culture of copycat, we're not in a culture of creative. And so I don't, I don't see Peter worrying so much about what he doesn't have. He doesn't say, oh man, I should have brought some silver and gold. That's what this guy really needed. Was like, I have silver at home. I could have brought it. Why didn't I bring silver and gold? We don't see that. And, and I know we, watch, we read it and we go, why would he do that? He's going to heal him. Nobody cares about silver and gold if he get healed. No, the point there is that Peter just gives what he knows he has. And may that be enough in the church, what you have. And this is why there's no, to me, there's no room for, for blanket judgment in the church against people because you don't even know what people have until you spend some time with them. You don't know what they offer. I'll tell you what I have found, my personal walk in ministry, is some of the people that add the most value in my encounters with them are people that are not front of the line. They're not on the stage. They're not the big name. They're, they're somebody else that just crosses into your path and, and create the most value in your life because they just use their gift. And maybe their gift's just hospitality. Maybe their gift helps. Maybe their gift's gentleness. But they use it. They use it really well. And, you, and, the, and the Holy Spirit emanates off of them because they're using their gift and they're not worried about somebody else's gift. Now, there's not going to be a lot of honor because we've got things backwards 
in our church culture, there's not going to be a lot of honor if you walk in the gift of hospitality. It's like they're not going to roll out red carpets and stick you in green rooms and, you know, put your name on billboards if you're hospitable. Um, but that's okay. Um, I don't think we would have done much of that stuff for Jesus either. It's, but it's discovering that gift. That's creative, not copycat. Creatively being what he has made you to be. Probably should have done this at the top, but I wanted to save it. Let's talk culture for a second. Culture has been defined, has been, meaning most of the time the business world, we try to define culture. If you ever take business classes, you're going to have a class that's going to teach you business culture because you're going to like business ethics. One of the things they'll teach you is that culture is shared goals, values, attitudes, and practices. And that's pretty good. So just act like that sentence is defining the church and you'll see what I mean by church culture because the church has a shared set of goals, a shared set of values, a shared set of attitudes, and a shared set of practices. And they're almost unspoken and they're almost implicit. You can walk into any church in the world and there's a shared set of goals and values. What's making the hour we live in really shaky in the church is that, is that you, some of those shared values are becoming less shared. <laughs> You know, and so you're, you're, you're kind of walking that tightrope sometimes on what, what that church culture actually looks like. But the book of Acts shows us the infant culture of the church, and I just mean that she was young and how that culture grows over time. And that also shows us the moments of divergence. We're going to walk into one right here where the culture of the world creeps up to the doorstep of the church. Here's the chance for the early church to copy the pattern of the world. This is always a temptation. Truth be told, we're probably doing it more than we realize in that we're copying some of the tactics the world would use rather than listening to the unique gifts given to us by the Holy Spirit. Because I personally don't believe in the franchise model of the church because I don't believe in the franchise model of the Holy Spirit. It's like the Holy Spirit comes in and he makes a Big Mac here and he makes a Big Mac here and he makes a Big Mac here. And I'm using that as a franchise allegory. And what I mean by that is if Jesus doesn't heal blind people the same way twice, why in the world would Jesus build the same two churches? And so I don't think there's a franchise model, like let's copy the way they do it, the way they do it, the way they do it. I think that ends up being copies, but it doesn't give people much creation, much creativity. Um, and so the early church has a chance. They're, they, have, they're, they brush up against something, and as you might imagine, it happens right here in this story. Now what we did is read the first 10 verses, okay? Peter and John come in, see the lame man, silver and gold have I none, rise, take up your bed, everybody shouts, the guy runs around. People get excited. Here's the next verse, Acts 3.11. Now, as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, imagine this physical holding on. Imagine this shaking with excitement. He's like he's shouting. He's so pumped. All the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's porch, greatly amazed. I want you to just let this season for a second. Imagine that this scene's getting louder and louder because that's what this verse is implying. The healed man grabs Peter and John. The crowd swells. Just envision this excitement that is building on the steps of Solomon's portico. The volume's going up. The people are running down the streets. Did you hear what just happened at the temple? Oh, so-and-so, name him if you want. Everybody knows his name. He's healed. And I'm telling you, he's healed. I just saw him dance up the steps of the temple. you got to get down here and see this. 12. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Why do you look so intently at us as though by our own power or our own godliness we had made this man to walk? I wrote in the margin of my Bible at one point, one of the most pivotal moments in the New Testament development of the church. 
because think about what is happening to Peter. Excitement. The crowd is pumped. They're grabbing hold of him. He watched this happen, by the way, when Jesus fed the 5,000. Peter was there. And when Jesus fed the 5,000 with a kid's lunch, the crowd went berserk. If you'll recall, they showed up the next day, the Bible says in John 6, to make him king. Remember that in Jesus' life. Now, Jesus is going to be king of kings. So you don't even fault him if in John 6 he goes, bring it on. That's why I'm here is to be a king. Of course, he's a king by dying and resurrecting, which is going to be totally offensive to the crowd. That's the eat my flesh, drink my blood stuff. But Peter watched Jesus deflect kingship. And so he's had a good teacher. And by watching his good teacher deflect kingship, Peter deflects it in Acts 3.12 and says, do you think I did this? Now, what makes Peter, why I respect this so much is because this is hard to get ministry to say right here. Do you think I'm the one that built this thing? Do you think I'm the, one, the reason why this is happening? I'm not the reason why this is happening. This is happening because I've got a gift. It's not me. It's just that God did it. And the reason why I say this is such a pivotal moment is because this pivotal moment in church development is due to the fact that there's a temptation to receive worship or to cash in, pardon the pun, because we're going to actually get into money in a second, but I, I sat and worked on that forever, and that was the best I came up with. The temptation to receive worship or cash in on adulation must have been great. I mean, Peter can have whatever he wants, and this temptation is going to come back a little bit later in the book of Acts because he's walking in power, and he's walking in authority, and people love power and authority, and they love to heap praise on it, and they love to heap adulation and worship on it, and Peter rejects it. And I want to give you a couple of thoughts about that. So let's think about this. Consider the offer to Jesus in the wilderness. I don't take you there because you know the story, and we've read it 50 times. So I just want to remind you, Jesus is taken to where he's on a mountain at Jerusalem and he can see the kingdoms of the earth. This has got to be almost a spiritual vision. I think the, the enemy shows him the world. I think he shows him Rome, the seat of great empirical power. And in the text, the Bible says that the devil says to Jesus... If you'll bow before me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. And here's how most of the time we've preached that. Well, Jesus is going to get all of the kingdoms of the earth by dying on the cross and resurrecting. He knows that. The devil either does or doesn't know that. So Jesus kind of has no problem looking at the devil and going, ha, 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 nice try. I'm not bowing down to worship you. I'm going to get it all anyway. And I think we're being unfair to Jesus' humanity. Because you're giving Jesus all the benefit of a thousand doubts that he knows that he's going to get it all anyway. And if you knew you were going to get it all anyway, you'd just laugh at the devil right there. That's not a temptation. What's wrong with you? I'm not going to bow before you. I own this joint. What are you, an idiot? All I got to do is wait a few years and I get it all anyway. Why would I give you anything? Mm, scratch that, start over. And then when the enemy shows Jesus the empires of the world, it's not this sound of just get down on your knee right now and worship me, you can have it. To take the knee is to, to join in. I think it's an offer from the enemy. 
may I illustrate. I think that the devil puts his hand out to Jesus and says, my brains and your brawn, me and you working together, we'll get this whole thing back to God. Let's go. Because the great temptation for Jesus, what, what, how tempted is he to bow down to the devil? But he's there to do his father's will. And what's his father's will? I've come to redeem this whole world. And I think the temptation of the devil is to offer that hand and go, we can do it together. I'm slick. I'm so smart. You're going to use an illustration here in a couple years that says, be wise as serpent, as harmless as doves. I'm that snake. That's how smart I am. But you got the power, man. I've watched you work. You can call down a legion of angels to do your bidding. You're so powerful that if you jumped off this cliff right now, the book says that the Father would catch you lest you dash your foot against the stone. That's the kind of power I want. I got the smarts. You got the brawn. You and me work together. We can bring this thing back to God. Let's do this. And if you don't think that's a temptation, then you've never been around power. <laughs> you've never been around control and authority. You get to go from the back of the line to the front of the line like that. That's hard to resist. You get to go from crushed carpenter from Nazareth, whose own family thinks you're nut job, by the way, by Mark 3. They all think he's lost his mind. And here you get to be in charge in the snap of a finger. That's the great offer. The temptation for power is overwhelming. And of course, we know that Jesus turns it away, walks back out into the ministry. And the defeat of the enemy begins there, by the way. The defeat of Satan starts there. You walk away from that offer for power he doesn't have much on you. So that's what Peter watched. If you reject the tactic, he has another one. Where the enemy can't convince you to join him, he's going to switch tactics. And he tries this on Peter in Acts 3. You get to become God. Now you go, what? Where does this manifest in our day-to-day -day life? I think this is what we see in atheism and agnostics and nihilism. The idea that there is no God, you stupid people that think there's a God, you can't prove that there's a God, but yet you believe it anyway, and there was no historical Jesus, and there's no real resurrection, and they come off with all of these reasons to not believe in God, and this is the thing that rarely gets mentioned or brought up. When you remove God, there's the void and the vacuum that only you get to fill because you're the only thing that matters. Because you've removed higher power. You've removed the invisible. All you trust is the visible in yourself. And you immediately go into the vacuum and you fill the void and you become God. And that's the great offer of the enemy. Is listen, if I can't get you to join me, then I put you in the driver's seat. You get to do this. And I think this manifests in church culture in some ways, not in that we've re necessarily gotten rid of God, but that we've replaced God's designs with some of our own. And we've kind of taken the hand of the enemy a little bit to try and bring about some sort of kingdom or some sort of culture that we think looks like heaven, but we had to marry it with some concept of hell. Every time in the history of humanity, that we have tried some form of theological headship in a country or a people or a state every time. 
we end up with a supreme amount of moral laws. Because the idea that we have that if the kingdom could run this country, if this country was a godly nation, we don't think we'd be feeding the poor, we'd be helping the marginalized, we'd, we would stop fighting. No, that's not what we think. We think we'd get rid of this sex sins and we'd stop alcoholism, we'd take drugs off the street. Every time we get the idea of Christian leadership, it has to do with restricting people's ability to do stupid things. It never has to do with feeding the poor and helping the stranger and holding up the widows. Now, why is that? Why is it that the culture we've created, and I think it's because we've become the driver's seat and the driver's seat needs power, needs control, needs restrictions. It's the great offer of the enemy. It's probably what drives as much of what we call church culture as, as anything in the world today. Let me show you one more and we'll close. Acts 8. One more story from the book of Acts. Acts chapter 8 is five chapters later. Same guy is Peter. Peter is the, the object of this story. Also with a guy named Simon Magus, Simon the sorcerer. They laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money. Here comes the classic, I'll buy the power that I need tactic. Verse 19. And said, give me this power also that on anyone whom I lay hands, they may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. The culture created in the early church, the push created right here in the early church um, was a temptation to copy, not to create, but to copy the culture of the world, which is where you can get whatever you need if you got enough money. Believe you me, that's the culture of the world. You can get a lot of stuff done if you got enough money. And Peter, at this point, resists the temptation to create a church culture where things can be purchased with money, where the power of God can be purchased with money. I want to read for you one passage from Paul's letter to 1 Timothy, and I'm not going to hit, we're going to read it, but I'm not going to hit every single word. I just did a series of podcasts on the book of Timothy, and I'm closing it next week. And this chapter consumed nearly a week of my time. And I, I just want to read to you a few of these verses, and I want to watch, watch you watch this argument. Paul's dying. This is one of the last things he writes is First and Second Timothy. He's in a prison cell. He's going to have his head chopped off a few days after this. And one of the last things he wants to say to Timothy is watch out because there's a wave coming and it's coming from the pulpit. Half of 1 Timothy is about false doctrine. He goes, there's a wave coming from the pulpit that's going to teach you a doctrine that's going to damn you. So pay attention. This is 2,000 years ago. Now tell me if this doesn't sound prescient. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3. If anyone teaches otherwise, doesn't consent to wholesome words, even the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine that accords with godliness, then that individual is proud and he knows nothing. Now watch this. Does this look like anything you've seen? That kind of teaching is going to make you obsessed with disputes and arguments over words. This is an infatuation with argument and conflict from which comes envy and strife and reveling and evil suspicions. Useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds, destitute of the truth. Watch this line. They suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Or as the old King James says, they suppose that godliness is gain or that gain is godly. The more you get, the godlier you are. And that message for 2,000 years has swollen the shores of that little body of water and flooded the earth of the church that says, 
A good sign that you're in God's good favor is if you have more stuff. Favor is indicated by who has the most. If you have a lot, God must love you. If you have a lot, you're doing something right. If you have a lot, you're walking by faith. If you have a lot, God's put his hand on you. Which means if you don't have a lot, then you do the math. That shows you where you are with God. This doctrine's alive in AD 65, about the time Paul gets his head cut off. This is already swelling in the church. Godliness is gain. From such withdraw yourself. But let me tell you what real godliness is. Contentment is great gain. Being content. Seven. For we brought nothing into the world. It's certain we're going to carry nothing out. We have food and we have clothing. With these we should be content. Nine and ten. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition because the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. The love of money is not the root of all evil, but it's the root of all kinds of evil. And so Paul knew it and said, listen, the more you fall in love with that, that's the system of the world, by the way. It'll cause you to stray from the faith, make you greedy, pierce yourself through with many sorrows. I want to land there just as a way of watching the push that the early church was in, a, in an economy that wasn't anything like our economy either. I mean, our economy was built for this passage. And yet that church was already going, don't copy the culture of the world. Don't copy the culture of the world. Create something different. So here's our landing. We will watch the culture of the church shift in the book of Acts. They leave some things behind when they're no longer useful. Example, temple worship. They don't do this the whole book of Acts, but they do it in the early part. Once that's no longer useful, once they realize that their faith is separate from Judaism, they leave it behind. They also leave some stuff behind when they get greater revelation. Remember they tried communal living? Started that business in chapter 2. They're going to keep that up through chapter 5. Sell your stuff, put it all in a pile, get what you need. That, that's gone by the end of the book of Acts because they have a greater revelation. They also have moments where they let the power culture of the world influence their actions. I put a question mark on Ananias and Sapphira because I got a feeling Ananias and Sapphira is an example of a moment where Peter used his apostolic authority in a way that the Holy Spirit wasn't happy about. Because if you think the Holy Spirit is happy about people falling over dying when they lie to the Holy Spirit, then I think Jesus would have something to say. Yet we, can, we see that happen in the book of Acts. We don't see it happen twice, but we do see it happen once. So I think sometimes that power culture of the world influences what they do. But I'll give them credit because the early church creates more than they copy. They do create a culture more than they copy a culture. A difficult template for us today, but one we should always keep in mind. I'm not telling you this is going to be easy, but I am telling you it will be an object of our prayer. Father, what culture are we creating in the church or what culture are we copying in the church? So Holy Spirit, blow the fan over the wheat of our churches so that whatever the chaff is will be the stuff we copied from the cultures of the world. And the wheat will be the things that's created by the Holy Spirit unique to that place. That that won't necessarily even look like the place down the road or across the town, but that it'll be unique to the gifts in that room. To me, the church is not just an organism that grows, because we always think that means grow in size. It's an organism that ought to shift with whatever people are a part of it. So as, as new people grow up within it, that organism changes its scope because it has new gifts in the room, has new attitudes, and then those leave, and those leave, and then these spring up, and the church is this moving and breathing thing that is growing as it goes and it's shedding off the, the clothes of its youth and it's putting on new clothes and it's shedding the ideas of its youth and it's bringing on new ideas 
And so the biggest insult we can have is to say, we're a church that's never changed. Because that means we're a church that never developed a new gift. We never did anything new. We just stayed in the same spot. It's not as bragworthy as it sounds. But to allow the culture to grow around the Holy Spirit that's in you, because you are a unique vessel of the Holy Spirit. And as you, that unique vessel of the Holy Spirit, interacts with me and I with you, then that has an, that has an effect on the whole body as whatever gifts in you grow. This is the slower way to do it because it requires us to cultivate gifts. The faster way to do it is the copy. So we can take in the cultures of the world and then put them in or take in the cultures of other churches or other people's visions or other people's dreams, other people's ideas. And I think in some ways we can stifle the work of the Holy Spirit within that room. And not just in a room, but in a people. Let's pray. I want to pray just a unique, uniquely for you. You are a part of the organism that is the church at large, but you're also a part of this little group. This little group that sometimes is a handful of people, that sometimes is two handfuls of people, that sometimes is a couple of dozen people, that sometimes is more than that because of those who watch and participate with us. But that is only a quantity thing. That's just size. What's really happening is I'm, I want to pray that you develop the gifts that the Holy Spirit has created in you. Father, you, each one of us are uniquely yours, and we each have an opportunity to add to the culture of the church. And by doing so, we, we shape it into what it's going to be. And I don't want to shape the church of which you've made me a part in any way after someone else, another church, another ministry, another idea, another doctrine, certainly not after the power structures of the world. What I want, Father, is, a, is to create because you use the gift that's in me. I'm not supposed to be like another preacher. This group is not supposed to be like another person. But what I have, I give, teach us what we have so that we can creatively design a culture in the church directed by the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.